0: Well, now I would uh, encourage you to open up your Bibles and uh, turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and chapter 21, so our reading from God's Word will come from chapter 21 of Revelation, verses 1 through 8, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. This is uh, the last message in the series of uh, sermons I've been doing covering the Evangelical Free Church of America's Statement of Faith. And so we're on Article 10 of that Statement of Faith and here in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. So I'll read God's Word from Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we now seek to meditate on these words, we ask you for your help, Lord, that you would come. Father, that you would enlighten us so we could see the glorious truths that are revealed here. Father, that we could know what is to come for all those who put their faith and trust in you. And also be warned, Father, that if we will not put our faith and trust in you, that there is also destruction ahead, terror ahead in your judgment. So Lord, help us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this past week, I picked up an old book written by A.W. Tozer. Tozer was a pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance uh, Church. Uh, His church was in Chicago. He was uh, pretty well known. Uh, He was the editor uh, for his denomination's newsletter and uh, always included a very well-written article in that newsletter by him. And so over the years uh, of, of his ministry, those articles were collected and then published as books. And there are still quite a few of these, those books by Tozer uh, in print. Uh, the book that, that I began to read this week included an article that he wrote on, on faith. And he began that article like this. Here's what, what, what Tozer wrote. He said, In the divine scheme of salvation the doctrine of faith is central god addresses his words to faith and where no faith is no true revelation is possible and he quotes hebrews 11:6 without faith it is impossible to please him every benefit flowing from the atonement of christ comes to the individual through the gateway of faith Forgiveness, cleansing, regeneration, the Holy Spirit, all answers to prayer are given to faith and received by faith. There is no other way. So as A.W. As Tozer argued there, faith is central to Christianity. It, it is a grand theme um, of the entire Bible. But what does it mean... To have faith. Well, there are, are several places that we could go in the scriptures to find the, uh, out about this, but it's good to consider a foundational one. And so let's see what it says about Abraham in Genesis 15. So Genesis chapter 15, um, you can turn there if you'd like in your Bibles. Uh, in that in that passage, it's a passage that, that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, looks back to in the book of Romans to describe saving faith. And in that passage in in Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham in a vision. And Abraham responds to God, wondering out loud why God has not yet given him an heir that God had promised him. And he's kind of questioning how it would ever happen since both he and his wife Sarah were so old. You know, how, how could it actually happen? Well, the Lord responded to Abraham by saying this. So he spoke to him, and he said, Your very own son, literally, the one who will come out of your own loins, so your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, so he brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be and then we are given the famous conclusion which paul points to as being the basis for justifying faith that is faith that leads to salvation which justifies us before god so genesis 15 verse 6 says this and he that is that is abram believed the lord and he counted it to him as righteousness So, that there is is the the biblical description of faith. It is simply taking God at His word, believing or trusting what He has said. That is what faith is. The believer is somebody who, who hears God's words from the Scriptures and believes them, he trusts what God says is true. He trusts that that it will happen, just as God says it will. And One of the clear, clear things that God tells us will happen is that he will judge the world. And he will cleanse the world of all unrighteousness and renew the world and will then come to dwell in the new world with his people. It will be a time when everyone will know the Lord, when when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, when everything will be made right, and when we look at the condition that our world is in right now and, and how well the glory of the Lord is known in our world right, right, right now, as in not very, not very well, well, it sure doesn't seem like this could ever be a possibility. What we see with our eyes is telling us there's no way justice Will even be possible for every person. But God's Word says it is. It is possible. God's Word says it is coming. God's Word says this world will be made new and He will dwell on the earth with His people. The question is will we believe this? Or to put it another way, do we have faith? do we trust him? Do we believe what he has said? So the main theme of uh, our, our passage from Revelation 21, 1 through 8 here, is that we are to be assured of God's faithfulness, that he will fulfill all of his promises to those who trust him. So we're in the last book of the Bible, in the second to last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and we are dealing with what Bible teachers have referred to as the last things. This is what biblical Christians believe about what is to come. Now listen to Article 10 of the Evangelical Free Church's Statement of Faith once again here. Again, we're closing out our series on the Statement of Faith. Here's Article 10. Here's what it says. It says, we believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to him In repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of his glorious grace, amen. So, with this final message in our sermon series on the statement of faith, I am concentrating on the very end of that article on what the Bible teaches about the new heaven and the new earth and why it is so right for us to sing the praises of His glorious grace. I believe Revelation 21, 1 through 8, nicely divides up into into two sections, with verses 1 through 4 uh, dealing with the former things that will pass away, and then verses 5 through 8 with God making all things new. So with, with of course, God being at the very center of all of it. He will do these things, not not us, not not humanity. He's at the center. He will accomplish this. So first, verses 1 through 4, God will bring an end to the old order of this world. Let's read those verses again. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We know from living in this world, especially from what we have seen take place in the last few months, that this world is a broken, fallen place. That our sin and rebellion against God has has an effect on everything in human society. But the Bible tells us that even though humanity has turned against God, that he did not utterly reject his sinful people. God instead came and spoke a promise, a promise of salvation, a promise of redemption for man. So throughout the scriptures, we see how God worked out his plan of redemption. And then through his prophets and, and ultimately through his son Jesus, God revealed that not only would there be a redemption for his people, but there was also coming A a consummation or a restoration of all of creation. That, that, That all of world history is leading and pointing us toward that coming time, that new age when all things will be made right. And our text here, Revelation 21, is describing that consummation of God's covenant commitment to his people. The Apostle John is given a vision of what is to come and he is commanded to write down what he sees and hears that's that is what the entire book of revelation is like and the final two chapters chapters 21 through 22 John describes the restoration of all things and in these eight verses we find fulfillments of God's promises to his people that he made through the prophets in every single verse of this passage. So first, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The old world, the old order of things has passed away. The sin-cursed world has finally come to an end here. God has judged all of sinful humanity, and John sees that he will bring about a new heaven and a new earth, or we could summarize it as a new creation. For those of you who honestly were were not all that excited about spending eternity up in the clouds, you know, in a strictly spiritual existence without the use of a body, the Bible here assures you that that is not at all what the eternal state will be like. God's people will spend eternity embodied, that is, in our resurrection bodies, on a new physical earth, that has also been resurrected. It will be like the earth before, in much the same way as our resurrected bodies will be like our bodies we had before. But it will also be far better, in much the same way as our resurrected bodies will be far better. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43, about our resurrected bodies, it says, It is sown... Our bodies are sown buried in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. So it will be the new heaven and the new earth. We will be able to walk and work and play and camp and hike and climb and do all the things that we enjoy on the earth, but it will be far, far better in the new creation. For as the end of the verse says, the sea will be no more. Now, we might think, well, what does God have against the sea? And this is where it would be helpful to have read the whole book of Revelation before coming to this passage, for back in chapter 13, verse 1 of Revelation, we find that this other time that the sea is mentioned there, we find that the beast, the beast who blasphemed God and made war on the saints, that he came out from the sea. He rose up out of the sea. And in the Bible, the sea is often a place of terror, a place of great danger. It is the great dark unknown from which evil comes. Rarely did anyone who fell into the sea ever come out again. So so this is saying no longer will there be a place for evil, terror, or darkness, or any threat in the new creation, for the sea will be no more. And then verse 2 Re-reveals who will be with God in the new creation. Verse 2 again, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Again, it is a new Jerusalem, which implies that the old Jerusalem had to be done away with. It is no more. The city of Jerusalem has had a special place in the story of God's people. It was the place of God's temple And the temple was where God dwelt among his people. It was a place where God met with his people. But it was also a place where God's people turned away from him. It was a place which they filled with, with idols of other gods, even erecting them in the temple. Ezekiel tells us of God's glory departing from the temple in the time of the Babylonian takeover of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem is no more, it says. For there, will be, for there will no more be any rivals to God in the new creation. No more will there be any impurity. For this is, as it says, a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem represents the people of God, the bride of Christ, who will inhabit the new creation along with God as verse 3 begins to show us. So look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Unfortunately, today, when I hear people talk about what they look forward to about heaven, very rarely do I hear them even mention God. They might say, well, they look forward to to seeing their deceased friends and relatives or being able to to do something which they really love to do, or they look forward to no longer having to work as hard and as difficult of a job as they have now. All those things may be some of the blessings of heaven. But verse 3 reveals to us the primary blessing. At the center of why heaven will be so great and glorious is because God will be at the center of it. He will be present dwelling with his people. We will see him. We will know him. We will be with him forever. In the old order, in the old world, God had to keep himself separate from man because of our sin. For God's people throughout the Old Testament times, the tabernacle and and the temple served as a constant reminder that God was, was kept away from his people. Only one priest on only, only one day a year could enter the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle or the temple. You know, that, that was the place where God's Spirit dwelt. And, and, and only one priest could go there on one day of the year and meet with God. But that could only be done through a blood sacrifice. No one else could enter. But here in the new creation, God's dwelling place will now be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I think about what what so many residents of care centers and retirement facilities have been experiencing these past three months because of the pandemic. They have been separated from loved ones, from their families. They have been cut off from being with them, now, they may have been able to, to, to see them through a window or see them on a computer screen, but they have not been allowed to be with them. And That's similar to how it has been for God and his people. Since mankind sinned against God, he has been separated from us. We, we've only been able to see him or know him through his word or through the forms that he set up in the old covenant in the temple. But the time will come when God's people will be with him. We will know him. We will see him face to face and will be in his presence forever. And verse 3 then reveals more of how the old order of things will be no more. They will have no place in the new heaven and the new earth in the presence of God. Look at verse 4. He, meaning God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All these things will be no more because they are all the result of sin. And sin will be no more in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be made holy and righteous. As the wonderful hymn by William Cooper puts it, all the ransomed church of God will be saved, to sin no more. So brother or sister, maybe you are experiencing some some great tension in your life or some sorrow brought on by your sin or some tragic event that has happened to you or even just some great disappointment in your life. I want to encourage you to consider what it says to you here in verses 3 and 4. See there that in the age to come, God is going to dwell with you and comfort you. Find here in these verses the resolution to all of your tension. Find here the comfort for all of your sorrow and the healing from every disaster and the consolation that swallows up every disappointment. God is greater than all your pain, greater than all your distress, and he will bring it all to a very satisfying end. And if you have not yet put your trust in God's Word, if you do not yet follow the Lord Jesus, then I, then I challenge you to try to imagine something better than what this passage offers you. I don't think you'd come up with anything that would be better than this. What could you desire that would be greater than what this passage describes? A new heaven and a new earth? A holy city? The presence of God, comfort for all sorrow, protection from any future pain. Seriously, what more could you want? Is what keeps you from following Christ really better than this? Verses 5 through 8 now. We'll see that God will make all things new here. Verses 5 through 8. As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So there are three main statements that God makes here in these verses. The first is a statement of what God is doing. The second is a command for the Apostle John, who is receiving this vision, to write down what he is about to hear which is very similar to the command that that John received at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, in verse 11 of chapter 1. And then the third statement is declaring who God is and what he promises to, to both the righteous and the unrighteous, to those who will be a part of the new creation and those who will not. We have never known a world without pain, death, and trouble. We have never known a relationship that was without sin, pride, and selfishness. Our times of success and joy have been wonderful, but they have not lasted. They have always come to an end. But here, in the new heavens and the new earth, God will make all things new. The old order will be completely done away with, and we will experience as Psalm 1611 puts it, the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In uh, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, in the last book uh, uh, of, of that series, which unfortunately was not in the, the this uh, part that I'm going to talk about was not, not in the movie. Near the very end of that book, after the ring had been destroyed and, and the, the two hobbits Uh, The heroes of the story, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee, uh, were on Mount Doom, uh, completely exhausted and believing that they were about to die. They they fall asleep. And later, after they've been rescued, when Sam wakes up, he sees their old friend, the wizard Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf's answer to Sam is, A great shadow has departed. That is like what God has promised to do for our world. The great shadow of sin and death and evil will be taken away. And God will make all things new. Everything sad will come untrue. And we will find that everything, all the promises that God has made in his word, especially the ones that we thought were too great to to really be real, they will all come true. That is the point of what it says in verses five and six. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and and the Omega, the beginning and The end. This is declaring that God is sovereign over all of human history. He was there at the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth and man in his own image. And when man rebelled against him, he then made a promise that he would redeem his people and one day put a final end to sin, death, and evil. And throughout history, he has has led his people to hope in him by reminding them of his promises in his word. And here here are a few of them that we find in the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel. I want you to listen to what God said through these men, which were written down for us. This first one is from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 23, and then 26 and 27. God says there, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then, then hear this from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 17 through 19. For behold... and the cry of distress these are the promises that the lord has made will we believe them will we trust them will we have faith in him going back to abraham will we simply believe what the lord has promised that is the way of salvation for you look again at the people who will enjoy the new creation there, verses 6 and 7 of Revelation 21. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Friends, to be included in the new creation, to be with the Lord forever, this says here, you just have to know your need for him. You just have to be aware that he is the only one who can satisfy your deepest longing. He is the one whom you were made for. And you must reject the sinful, rebellious ways that you have been trying to satisfy your thirst, to satisfy your longings before while you're in this world. Those are mentioned there in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All of us have sinned in these ways because we were deceived into believing doing these things would satisfy our thirst. But they never did. And they never will. Because they can't. We also see this revealed in the prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The Lord is the only one who can satisfy our thirst for meaning, for peace, for purpose in our lives. For he is the fountain of living waters. This is a warning that if you continue to to, to seek to satisfy your thirst In these ways, listed in verse 8, you will not only end up never being satisfied, but you'll end up suffering the second death, eternal conscious torment forever and ever. But there is a way for you to be satisfied. That is, turn away from those ways, confess your sins to the Lord, and believe what he has said here in his word. Believe that he is the Lord that his words will all come true and that you will be one of those who will have your thirst satisfied by the spring of the water of life in the new heaven and the new earth. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have pondered this glorious passage, this glorious reality that you have said here is coming, And that we can experience if we just would run to you and believe your words and turn away from and reject all the the wicked and evil ways, detestable ways that we have sought to satisfy our, our own desires. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us the wisdom that comes through the fear of the Lord and that we would know you And that one day, we would be among those who would be with you in the new heaven and the new earth. I pray for all those listening. Work in their hearts. Convict them of sin. Reveal to them the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his offer to come and be satisfied in him. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now behold, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.